So John chapter 18, uh, we've been walking here in John for uh, a while now, taking in the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, one thing that you can't help but to notice is how polarizing uh, the person of Jesus is. And, you know, it sounds like the two shouldn't go together because when you think of Jesus, you think of peace and uh, unity. Certainly unity is something that we stress and that we strive for and call for. Uh, here in this church, but for years Jesus did life among many of the same people uh, that now are uh, calling for his life. And as long as he did life among them as Mary and Joseph's boy, there was no cause for concern. But when Jesus begins public ministry, with the declaration of being not just a son of God as one who worships God and who serves God, but uh, a son of God, very God of very God, a son sent from the Father, we begin to see the proverbial pot being stirred. Amen? As long as he's a man, even a good man doing great things, they celebrated him. You know, you think of the time when he fed the 5,000 and they wanted to make him king, right? But as God calling men to be held to a standard, as God calling men uh, to be accountable, calling them out of darkness, the refrain was no longer, let's make him king, but crucify him. So the question is, and it's a question that has long been asked, is he God or is he man? The answer is... Yes, he is man, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is man, scripture says, tempted in every measure like we ourselves, yet without sin. He is man, we've seen him weep, he's experienced loss, he's experienced betrayal. And here in this text, he's about to be bound and tortured and killed. He is also God. His father's fathers called him Lord because he predated them. He's God because he is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. He is God because no man takes his life, but he lays it down. And if he lays it down, he has the power to pick it up again. He is man. He is God. And he is both for us. Man for our example and God for our strength. And we see both in the garden in our text. If you would allow me some freedom to kind of parallel the gospel accounts, we'll kind of set the stage for us. Uh, It is in this garden where Jesus instructs the disciples to watch and pray. In this garden where Jesus says that my soul is sorrowful even unto death. In this garden where Jesus comes back after praying and finds his disciples asleep instead of watching and praying. In this garden where Jesus makes his request to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In this garden where scripture declares, and he being in agony, prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And in this garden called Gethsemane, where he prayed for us the prayer that Pastor Brian has been walking us through over the last three weeks. So our text in John 18, read with me verses 1 through 3. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's worth noting here, at least for me, it was worth noting uh, just to get some perspective of Judas's entourage here uh, prior to uh, this week or last week, I never really paid much to much attention to the to the group that came with Judas, but Judas brings muscle from both sides. The officers, uh, it says, of the of the priest and of the Pharisees were of the religious leaders, and then the band of soldiers were Roman soldiers. Warren Wearsby says in his commentary regarding it that the word band in John 18.3 could be translated cohort. And a Roman cohort was a tenth of a legion. This would be about 600 men. So Judas came to the garden ready, right? Now Wearsby goes on to say, and it's Makes sense. It's not likely that Judas brought all 600 men into the garden, but certainly it paints a picture that he came to in, in, with the intention, rather, excuse me, of creating a show of force. So not only did he show up in numbers, but he showed up with armed men, it says, with torches and lanterns and, and weapons. And how did Jesus respond to this arm? group of men who showed up in the garden verses four through six then Jesus knowing all that would happen came forward and said to them who do you seek they said Jesus of Nazareth Jesus said to them I am he Judas who betrayed him was standing with him when Judas said to when Jesus said to them I am he they drew back and fell to the ground Jesus our example responded with courage He doesn't shy away from the confrontation. He doesn't tremble with fear. He doesn't run and hide himself or send the disciples out to see who these men were and what they wanted. He presents himself. Scripture says he knew what was about to happen. He presents himself. Who do you seek? Too often us as believers, we shy away from confrontation when Scripture calls us to it. Matthew 18 and 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault. Luke 17 and 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And in Galatians 2, you've heard it here many times, Paul opposes Peter to his face because his behavior was out of step with the gospel. And these are just examples within the family of God. How much more are we called to deal with confrontation to those who are without Now, maybe you won't be like Jesus here. Maybe you'll never need the courage to confront a large group of armed men who seek to arrest you because of your faith. Amen. But some of our brothers and sisters across seas are. Amen. You'll certainly need courage to do life among each other. According to the scripture, we just saw that in some of the scriptures. You certainly need courage to fulfill Jesus' instructions to us as ambassadors of Christ. Amen. Hear his words to the disciples in Matthew 10, starting with verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brethren will deliver over brother, over to death, and the father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Amen. Jesus exemplifies courage for us and gives us a source for that courage. As Jesus asked, whom do you seek? And the men turned to say, Jesus of Nazareth. His response is, I am he. Two things worth noting here. One, we can reference uh, the, the phrase, I am he, to Exodus chapter 3 as Moses is talking with God and um, he asks the Lord, you know, when I go to the people and, and say the God of your father sent me, who shall I say that sent me? If they ask, what's his name? What shall I say? God responds to Moses and says, tell the people, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. In verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we have here a declaration of his divinity. Again, he is not just a man. He is also God. But we also have a demonstration of his power. We can be courageous, family, because our God is matchless in might and in strength. Jesus also exemplifies for us compassion here in the garden. Take a look at verse 7 with us. So he asked them, whom do you seek? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. So answer, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom I gave you, of you whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword into its sheath. In his compassion, he covers. And please note that Jesus is not negotiating terms of surrender here when he says, if you seek me, let these others go. He is giving command. Scripture often says that when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one with authority. And that's what he's doing even now as he covers his disciple, his compassions, his compassion, rather his love for God and his love for people always drives him to action. Search the scriptures and you'll see it in Matthew 8. A man with leprosy is healed. Again, in Matthew 8, we see the demon possessed set free. In Matthew 9, the distressed and dispirited people are comforted. In Matthew 14, a large crowd is fed. In Matthew 20, blind eyes are open. His compassion always drove him to action. And in our text, not only does he cover the disciples, he covers Peter. Peter, who in this moment that was ordained by God, wanted to take matters into his own hands, oftentimes as he did. And oftentimes in Scripture, Jesus had to rebuke Peter, Peter rather. But Jesus covers even him. Do you remember 
the words to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I like another translation that says, and when you have recovered. Amen. And when you have recovered, go and strengthen your brethren. Jesus covers us even in our failings. We struggle sometimes to witness, afraid of what to say or what not to say. And here Peter is cutting off ears. So if God can handle severed ears, do you think he can handle what people might hear? Jesus also covers Malchus. He covers the disciples. He covers Peter. And he also covers Malchus, one of the very men who showed up to arrest him. So what is our compassion driving us towards? If we are willing to follow our example, your compassion to drive you to labor inside the church as Jesus covered the disciples to brothers and sisters who are in sin as Jesus covers Peter, and to those who are without as Jesus reaches to heal Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Lastly, in the garden, Jesus exemplifies for us commitment. Look with me at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that my father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it should be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus instructs Peter to stand down because the cup is the will of the father. He wasn't comfortable with the cup. Again, looking at Luke's account, it, 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 it records for us that Jesus prayed to the Father, if, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So he wasn't comfortable, but he was committed. Not comfortable because Jesus knew the contents of the cup. The moments were not lost on him, amen? He knew being bound and arrested was in the cup. He knew Annas and Caiaphas were in the cup. He knew Peter's denial and the other disciples being scattered and leaving him alone was in the cup. He knew being questioned and mocked were in the cup. He knew Pilate was in the cup. He knew the whipping and the crown of thorns and the cross were in the cup. He knew the burden of sin and the crushing weight of judgment as the wrath of God poured out on him was in the cup. He knew the silence of heaven as the face of his father, even if just for a moment, turned away from him as he cried out, Father, Father. He knew it was in the cup. So it wasn't comfort. But his commitment was to the cup because the cup was the father's will. His commitment came from his love for the father and his joy in fulfilling the father's will. I ask myself and I ask you guys this morning, what's in your cup? I've been examining myself since 
you know, the, the Fifth Avenue team came and labored with us and just watching how feverishly they labored going door to door and watching the results of the people coming in and then going over to Jackson and watching them walk the streets and pray with people, compelling men to come and then watching the gratitude of the hearts of the people who probably wouldn't have had a meal that day. As they labored and I, I questioned my own comfort and my commitment of getting out of my comfort. There's a song that says, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free, right? It says, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. So there's a cup for us, family. Are we committed to drinking it? Not for comfort. My prayer is that the Lord would make us comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's something that we've said since the beginning of this thing, right? Because as you look around the room, you see people who don't look like you. As you stand in worship, you hear songs that you won't play on your radio. So not for comfort, but for love of God and love for neighbor. For the joy of doing God's will. Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who were far off has brought, been brought near to him. And now God is looking to you. God is looking for your courage. God is looking for your compassion. And God is looking for your commitment. That others who do not know him can also be brought near.